Good morning, Village 7. It is good to be with you in worship this morning. You know, just when we thought that this was all done with this no in-person church stuff, we get the biggest snowstorm of the year. Well, I hope that you are well this Sunday morning, and this sure will be a weather story to talk about for some time. We all love stories, and it turns out that some of the stories we love best are murder mysteries, stories about death and mayhem. Psychology Today looked into this several years back, and here's what they have to say. By more than two to one, murder mysteries are people's fictional book of choice. But there are a lot of crimes and killings and mayhem in other fiction books. So what makes murder mysteries different? Reassurance. This is the most important aspect of classic murder mysteries but it's hidden and unspoken. It's the journey from fear to reassurance. In generic terms, the story begins when something terrible has happened. There's confusion, uncertainty, and fear as the people affected try to determine how to respond. Someone then steps up to take responsibility for solving the crime. That person may or may not be an official detective, but they accept the mantle and the challenge of finding the murderer. They elect to make the journey. And by doing so, they become our stand-ins as we ourselves are vicariously invested in making the journey. Several years ago, there was some significant work that psychologists did suggesting that the fairy tales children read have a very helpful effect on their emotional lives. The psychologists found that the fairy tales gave children a format that allowed them to deal with their fears and traumas and be less troubled by them. In much the same way, murder mysteries may act as fairy tales for adults. And they conclude with this. We live in a world beset by wars, violence, and myriad disasters. But murder mysteries may give us hope by telling us stories that begin with evil events, but call forth the efforts of people who can rise to heroic heights and reassure us that with great effort, evil can be overcome. We love murder mysteries because they're redemptive. They give us hope and help us move from fear to reassurance. Pretty interesting perspective from psychology today. You see, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is in fact a murder mystery and the greatest of all time. Jesus is our hero who steps in to make the journey and move us from fear to reassurance. It gives us hope. Jesus' death is not a mystery because we don't know who killed him. But why did Jesus die? And what does this accomplish? What did his death accomplish? Another important factor is that he's not dead. It's quite the interesting twist in a murder mystery. So we're going to look into this mystery today. And you know what? A decent amount of this is truly a mystery to me. So we're, we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to look at Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. And we're going to see that Jesus unites all things, including people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we're going to look at verses 9 and 10. We're going to see three things from this text. It's going to come right from this text. We're going to see the mystery of God's will, the mystery of his will. We're going to see that that is in Christ, this plan was put forth, and we'll see his kingly rule in that. 
And thirdly, we're going to see that it is to unite all things in him. So first, the mystery of his will. Let's look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. You know, all these points are kind of intertwined and work towards one another. And if you remember in this chapter, in Ephesians chapter 1, we're in the middle of Paul's kind of exuberant exhortation to the people of all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. So literally, the truths that we're going to see this morning in verses 9 and 10 are tucked into Paul's just outpouring of spiritual admonition. Like murder mysteries that I just mentioned, a mystery is something that's hidden or concealed. The Greek word that Paul used here is mysterion, which is the word that we get, from, we get mystery from that, but with the connotation of something that was formerly hidden or concealed and is now revealed. The Bible talks about many mysteries, the mystery of Israel, the mystery of the kingdom of God, the mystery of the resurrection, the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of faith, the mystery of godliness, and here with the mystery of God's will. The mystery of God's will is in fact now revealed in Christ, whereby Jesus unites all things, including people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The mystery of God's will is this, that Jesus unites all things, including people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Later in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul does specifically highlight that part of this mysterious union is bringing together all different kinds of people. Paul talks about bringing together Jews and Gentiles, and that Jesus is uniting all kinds of people. Jesus unites all things, and he is the answer to the greatest mystery in the world. But how is God going to accomplish this redemption? Well, Christ is our Savior, and he is our restorer. Brian talked last week about Christ accomplishing salvation for, that, for us, in that our redemption is through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This may not seem like much of a mystery to us, because this has now been revealed for 2,000 years. But think about what it would have been like to be a Christian in the first century to receive this letter from Paul. Paul wrote Ephesians when he was in prison and this was a letter that was passed around from church to church and, and so you're a Christian and you're sitting, you're huddled around in your little house church of maybe 15 or 20 people and you know it's a mixture of probably Jews and Gentiles so you have that kind of loaded social setting. And by popular culture, you're thought of as crazy, and there's, there's idolatry, there's all kinds of different things going on at temples and debauchery all around you. And you read, or someone begins to read this letter from Paul. He tells you that the mystery of God is revealed in Christ, and that he's bringing everything together. How could this be true? Under what authority does, does a carpenter from Nazareth have this kind of authority? Not a chance. What about a priest or a rabbi? Would they have 
this kind of authority? Nope. What about a leader of a big spiritual movement that starts to turn heads and causes the authorities to go and arrest this person and and end up killing this person? Would someone like that have the authority? Not even that. But what if he was more than a carpenter? Thank you, Josh McDowell. Wouldn't it take the, the king to accomplish such a feat? The king of all kings, the king who was with God in the beginning, the king who is God, according to John chapter 1. This brings all of this together. What if Jesus was this king? This is what we see with our second point this morning, that this is all in Christ. The second part of verse 9, it says that which he set forth in Christ as a plan It was always the plan for this to be in Christ, to see his kingly rule played out. You know, one of the traps that we fall into in our Christology is that Jesus is just kind of a a meek savior. You know, we believe that Jesus saves, but don't think much about him ruling and reigning over all creation. And Jesus did come from the humblest of beginnings, He lived his life in poverty on the streets, just as a rabbi preaching from town to town. But brothers and sisters, do you know where Jesus is sitting at this very moment? He is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he is ruling and reigning over all creation. He is the king of the cosmos. And it takes the king of the cosmos to unite all things in the cosmic realm. Famous quote by Abraham Kuyper just hits on this point. He says that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Do you see him like that this morning? J.R. Tolkien beautifully portrayed the mysterious rise of a king. In the return of the king from Lord of the Rings, he says, But when Aragorn arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence. For it seemed to them that he was revealed to them now for the first time. Tall as the sea kings of old, he stood above all that were near. Ancient of days he seemed, and yet in the flower of manhood. And wisdom sat upon his brow, and strength and healing were in his hands, and a light was about him. We long for a true king. For centuries, the people of God longed for the one true king, the ultimate Davidic king, who would reign with justice and mercy. And one of the most important and significant responsibilities of a great king is that they will stand in the breach. They will put themselves in harm's way in order to protect their people. Likewise, a priest will will intercede on behalf of the people. And lastly, a righteous prophet will proclaim the truth no matter what may befall him. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, our king. When he came into Nazareth in Luke 4, 
He walked into the synagogue and unrolled the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and proclaimed, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the listeners sat and kind of questioned, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this that carpenter's son? He was Joseph's son to them, but truly he is the son of God. And as the son of God, he proclaims good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. He instituted justice and he accomplished justice as the one true king, God's grand story of redemption. God's grand story of redemption in all of creation, of what he's working and weaving through every person, is all about Jesus. It all points to him. Every messianic prophecy is fulfilled in him. And when we spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, it's all going to be about Jesus This is the plan set forth that the God-man, Jesus Christ, would bring together everything that is unraveling. He has and is and will accomplish the union of all things, to unite all things. That's our third point this morning. Let's look back again at our verses 9 and 10. Look at the second half of 9 and 10, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The revelation of the mystery of God is that Christ is the plan for the world. You know, many scholars agree that that what Paul talks about here, what he highlights here in the second half of verse 10 is not just the main point of Ephesians, which many do think it is, but also maybe even the very thesis for all of redemptive history. Christ has, is, and will accomplish the union of all things, things in heaven, things on earth, unifying all people, all types of people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Is this true? Is that what you see going on around the world today when you think about the last couple years, when you think about the different things going on in politics and in our society, even within the church? In case you haven't noticed, our bodies, our societies, our relationships, our world, everything is unraveling. It seems to be unraveling and breaking down. I'm only 33, but to quote the great country theologian Toby Keith, I ain't as good as I once was. We're frail. Our world leaders are vipers and the earth itself is decaying. Paul highlights this in Romans 8 and says that that everything in all creation is groaning in, in anticipation of ultimate redemption and restoration. Everything is groaning because It seems as if and there's unraveling and decay. So how is Jesus uniting all things? How is he accomplishing this? Much of how 
Christ is working and accomplishing this restoration is a mystery to us. But we can trust, we must trust that Jesus is ruling in such a way that one day everything is going to be repaired. He's working and ruling in, in such a way that everything's going to be, re- be repaired. If we, if we look for his fingerprints, if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear what God is doing, we can see that God is slowly but surely bringing things together, bringing about restoration, bringing about healing, bringing together people who are different. One of the practical things that we can see that Jesus did to point to this, to point to the healing, to point to the restoration, was the miracles that he performed while walking on the earth. You know, Jesus turned water into wine and and he multiplied the fish and the bread to show that in the new heavens and the new earth, it's going to be marked by a feast that knows no end. Jesus restored sight to the blind to show that in the new heavens and the new earth, our eyes will be open and there will be healing. He calmed the storm to show that Jesus is bringing chaos to order. Jesus raised the dead because in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be marked by resurrection and life. Jesus proclaimed good news to all people, to Jews and Gentiles, because this news is for all people. The new heavens and new earth will be, fit, people will be filled with people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's going to be diverse. There's going to be people that are completely different. There's going to be people there that disagree with you politically. Even that. And we get a foretaste when we look to God's word and when Christ opens our eyes to see his work in us and around the world. You know, I took a class in seminary and uh, it, was, it was an amazing experience. It, was a, it wasn't a professor. It was they actually brought in a pastor from South Africa and he has written a couple of books. His name's Trevor Hudson. And it, it was a, an amazing experience to get to take this class from him. And, and he was talking about the church and, and kind of divisions and different beliefs about things and doctrines and denominations. And, and he recounted back to kind of his earlier years in ministry. And he said, uh, he, was, he was a Methodist pastor. And he said, you know what? For the longest time, I honestly thought that God was a Methodist. I really thought that that's what he was like. You know, God gets it. He, he sees what's going on here. He's, he would agree with me on this issue and that one. And we're, we're probably right. And if we think for ourselves right now, we can probably identify with that statement. God gets it right. He, he, if, if Jesus was walking around these days, he would probably land in a Presbyterian church, right? Or PCA, reform something. He gets it. He believes what we believe. He would vote the way that I vote. But I'll never forget, Trevor Hudson looked out into the class after kind of letting us let the wheels turn for a little bit. And he said, God is bigger than your tribe. God is bigger than your tribe. And that's something that we desperately need to hear. We need that here at Village 7. And just to to reiterate what Brian mentioned last week, 
There's all kinds of different things going on in the world today, but here at Village 7, we want to keep the main thing the main thing. We would love to see Village 7 be a community of gospel-centered people who rely on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for my sake, he became poor, so that you and me, by his poverty, might become rich. God is about bringing things together, Jesus uniting all things in him. Jesus is putting people back together. He's putting all things back together. That's why we even have the jobs that we do. That's what our vocations are about. It's about bringing chaos to order. We get to, to, to think about that. We get to go out into the workplace and we get to think about how our jobs are bringing chaos to order. So you think about from musicians to stay-at-home parents or CPAs or hairdressers. It's all bringing chaos to order. And in this great mystery... Jesus puts us back together. I know I need to be put back together. My family needs to be put back together. What about your family? What about our city? What about Colorado Springs? He accomplished this great feat on the cross. Jesus unites all things, including people, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. What a Savior. What a Savior. Has God opened your eyes to the beauty of Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, that you are a good God, and you are a God that, that loves us, that saved us, and through your son, Jesus Christ, is uniting all things in him and all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, all types of people. Lord, it's going to be an amazing day to be with you in the new heavens and the new earth and to see the diversity, to experience what it's going to look like, the shalom, the peace that we're going to experience. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to work in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit that you work through our jobs and work through our families and our relationships to bring about unity. That we would proclaim the gospel. That we would proclaim the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for who you are. And we ask that you would be pleased to use us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we love seeing the ways that our faith is reflected in our daily work. And to encourage that, we are doing video interviews with Village 7 congregants to, to show this and to highlight this, reflecting on how their faith impacts their weekday work. So here is Jeremy, a public school teacher, and this is his story. I'm a teacher at the Classical Academy, so this time tomorrow I'll be teaching APA English and rhetoric. I've seen brokenness in my work 
in terms of what people think about themselves, how they see themselves. When students try to get their self-worth from their performance, what I see is that they, they fall into this all too attractive lies of this world and things become transactional, right? I'll, I'll give them an assignment and, and they do the assignment. Then I give them points. And it's all about points and performance and, and being good enough. But then that doesn't really fulfill. That doesn't give them their worth. I've seen students who are given all of the available love and support fall into these very self-destructive thoughts. Being a Christian who wants to have you know, his faith in the classroom for my students. I, I believe that God has me where he wants me, but this is a tricky thing to do, right? Putting my faith in my classroom, in the public school setting, it is difficult. But I will say what you can do is that you'll find something that will allow you an opportunity to talk about your faith. And Brothers Karamazov is the biggest example of that for me. I remember watching one particular young lady. She's so talented so wonderful, so kind, and she was still struggling with thoughts of not being enough. And she struggled with seeing truth as true. She struggled with seeing any meaning in this world. Suddenly, Jean-Paul Sartre and Nietzsche are the thinkers, the writers that she found more compelling than anything else. That was until we read the Brothers Karamazov. She was different. We talked in class about how God loves those who sin and those who suffer. She came to me and she handed me a letter. And in the letter, she talked about how she struggled with self-destructive thoughts until hearing about God's love. And she told me that she was going to church for the first time in several years. She told me that she wanted to know Jesus. And she handed me her books, the Sartre and, and Nietzsche, because she didn't need them anymore. You know, there's no such thing as values free. Who, who you are is going to come out in what you do. We're either going to be a wonderful example or a terrible warning or maybe a little bit of both. Truth be told, even as an English teacher, I don't really care if they know where a comma goes. I mean, that's a bonus. I hope they know that, I suppose. But what I really want is for them to be good people, speaking well, doing good in this world. If you would like to join the discussion, go to v7pc.org forward slash faith and work, and you can sign up to be on our email list. Let's actually spend some time praying now for our educators. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our work and the way our people serve you, especially in the education system. Educators have a profound impact and bring order and create culture. And they create culture out of the unfinished rawness of creation. Lord, we know that educators are broken, that the educational systems are broken. And so we ask for forgiveness. And we ask for help for our educators to have discernment and wise judgment as they seek to instruct you, as they seek to instruct in, in truth and, and bring a redemptive outlook to all areas of life. Lord, we thank you for each educator in our city. We thank you for the educators that we have here in our congregation. Guide them as they love their students and coworkers. 
Lord, bless them and, and protect them as they teach and encourage them and use them to bring the gospel in word, deed, and, and in cultural impact to Colorado Springs. We thank you for them, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.